Welcome to episode nine of Between Two Docs. Straight talk from two doctors, no politics, no hysteria, no tunnel vision. We're just two doctors continuing to combat COVID in the real world. Please keep the questions coming. Free part show today as usual. We're gonna start with some news topics from the week. Then we have a special guest for our interview today, Dr. Deepak Raja, who's an ophthalmologist from Orlando, Florida. Uh, also the site of the NBA bubble. And then we hit on a few of your questions. So let's jump right into the news. I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Valentino. Yeah, so, some, some positive news here, uh, which is great. We, we need some wins. Um, the American Thoracic Society uh, this week had published a, a, um, a study looking at the reduction in ICU mortality of COVID patients and how it has declined from the early days uh, in the beginning of 2020, and this is global, it's not just uh, from the United States, um, to what it is now. So, you know, if you, if you remember historically, we were initially getting numbers of 60, 70, 80% mortalities in patients who became ill enough to go to the ICU, especially if they needed to go on a ventilator. Uh, that was certainly the, the, the biggest factor. Um, and now uh, we've had a number of, of uh, centers in the U.S. and abroad publishing uh, data that is much lower than that. Um, quite a few um, uh, places have internal data that I've uh, been able to come across from colleagues that has been looking in the 25 to 35% range. Um, so that is great. And uh, it, it dovetails into one of the news topics that came up this week, uh, protocols. Um, by far, uh, protocols are having an approach uh, work, uh, and the protocols have to be adapted. They have to have some basis in science and evidence, and then again, they should be studied to see, um, you know, uh, what's working, what isn't, and refined over time as we learn more. One such example of this is Math Plus, and uh, no parents, I'm not talking about Common Core Math, uh, which is definitely Math Plus Plus. Um, I think we're talking more about methylprednisolone, which is a steroid, ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, uh, thiamine, which is vitamin B1, and heparin, which is a blood thinner, an anticoagulant uh, that we use in the hospital, typically in either subcutaneous or IV form. So there is an organization called the FLCC, um, which you can look up, and they published their protocol. Um, it's being touted by some of the folks using it as a uh, a mortality reducer, and they do uh, cite areas of evidence under each of the letters uh, from corresponding drugs that I just mentioned. So I did peruse that the methylprednisolone steroids have probably the largest amount of data behind them in study for COVID thus far. We, we referenced the recovery trial with dexmethasone a few weeks ago. Uh, ascorbic acid, uh, the references that they list there are primarily not in COVID. They're actually in uh, sepsis and septic shock. Uh, in shock states. And uh, the literature there is uh, really quite up and down as to whether vitamin C is effective or not. Um, so just be understanding of that when you look at that section. And the same goes for thiamine. A lot of the data there on thiamine has been uh, in reduction of lactic acid production and, and other forms of shock, not primarily COVID. So again, when you're looking at that reference section, be mindful of that. And then finally, heparin, um, which we know is helpful from the, the, the mitigation of the clotting that we've seen in COVID, uh, as we've noted before, 25 to 30 percent of patients at, at least with severe COVID can have clotting complications. So when you look at it as a whole, it's, it's a, a step forward. It's needed. But again, this is not something that, oh, we found the answer. Uh, we, we have, um, you know, 
the, the commandments. This is what we must use. It's not that. Um, but it is something that's a pathway forward that I think we need to see them publish data on what they're doing with it, uh, aside from anecdotals. But uh, take a look at it for yourself and just realize what it is. And I think we're making steps in the right direction. Yeah, super reassuring that we're heading towards more unified uh, treatment protocols and, uh, you know, along those lines in, in the good news uh, column, uh, Moderna released more of their phase one uh, mRNA vaccine results. Uh, we're going to talk about the good news, the caveats and the takeaways. So the good news is they gave these, uh, they gave vaccine to 45 patients. Uh, 15 patients in three different dosing categories were given two injections intramuscularly, 28 days apart. What we saw is that this two vac vaccination series produced high levels of neutralizing antibody, antibody that will kill, neutralize the virus, at above the level seen in serum taken from people who actually survived COVID-19 infection. So a more robust response from vaccine than from disease itself. What well, we have to look at and get down and you know, look at the numbers a little bit better, there were some side effects. So they looked at three different groups. There was a 25 microgram group, 100 micrograms, and 250 micrograms. After the first shot, common side effects included chills, fatigue, headache, muscle pain, pain at the injection site. Um, about half in each group experienced that. After the second injection, however, we saw some more systemic adverse events. In the low-dose group, about half. However, in the middle and high-dose groups, 100% of people had a systemic adverse event after the second dose. So while we're getting good antibody response, we're also having some side effects and that has to be balanced as we get closer to vaccine. The 250 microgram dose, the high dose, which was linked to severe systemic side effects, did not necessarily increase efficacy beyond that of the 100 microgram dose. So things to think about. Um, one thing we have to think about is how's this going to work in the elderly? The people studied so far between the ages of 18 and 55, generally a younger and healthier population, generally this group will manifest a more robust immune response to vaccination. Will the elderly be able to do the same or will there be multiple boosters or a higher dose given to the elderly like our flu vaccine in the wintertime? The other piece is yes, we're seeing these neutralizing antibodies. Uh, however, how do they work in the real world and how long will this last for? We, this is a two-shot series currently. Will this need to be done yearly? We need a booster at six months or will this need to be given in combination with some of the other vaccines that are being studied? Way more to come, but the good news is this is promising news. We're seeing robust antibody production, even more so than people had COVID-19. And starting July 27th, which is nine days from today, 30,000 folks are enrolled for our phase three trial. Remember, this is accelerated. We are six months into this. This normally takes five, 10, 15 years to get to this point. So there's gonna be bumps in the road, but promising news nonetheless. Great story. So it is our honor to uh, have our first ophthalmologist as a guest. Uh, today we have Dr. Deepak Raja. I'll give you a little bit of background on Dr. Raja. Uh, he got a degree in engineering from Duke University, uh, Pride of the Blue Devils, and then went on to get his uh, MD degree at the University of Miami. So he traveled a little further south there, and then uh, he went to the Vanderbilt Eye Institute for his ophthalmology residency. And following that, he decided uh, he needed to see what it was like up north, so he went and did a cornea fellowship at the University of Minnesota, 
And then following that, he went into academic practice at the University of Alabama uh, for about a two-year period, uh, at which point he got into private practice with his wife, actually. And they are at the Orlando Eye Institute in Orlando, Florida. And his specialty uh, is uh, an interest in dry eyes, glaucoma, and cataracts. And when he's not uh, taking a look at your eyes, or, or doing eye surgeries, he's actually might be found playing in his band uh, called Noise from the Woods or writing novels. So we're happy to have him here today to go over a couple of the aspects uh, of COVID that uh, we haven't discussed yet, but have certainly made it into the news and questions that people have sent us. And that is, you know, kind of what about the eyes? What does COVID do to the eyes? So um, first question uh, we have for you, uh, Dr. Raja is, What's been the experience so far in Florida, being that Florida's in the news a lot now for high incidence of, of COVID. Um, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Cohen is, is Pennsylvania, so we've been there. Um, and so how has the COVID pandemic affected um, your practice? And then what kind of measures has your practice taken to ensure patient safety? Sure, Dominic. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way, Dominic and uh, Harris. Well, uh, Florida has been projected as an epicenter really for some time. Uh, even early on, the state did put a hold on elective uh, surgical procedures like cataract surgery, which is a staple of what we do as ophthalmologists. Uh, and our local county, Orange County, uh, invoked a, like a shelter in place, kind of like a quarantine, but they basically shut off all restaurants, non-essential businesses. As an essential business, we were still allowed to see patients. Uh, but you know, honestly, we didn't know a whole lot about the disease at that time. Even the, the doctor in Wuhan, China, Dr. Uh, Li Wenliang, uh, was the ophthalmologist who actually whistleblowed or whatever you want to call it, you know, about the cases at first. Uh, and he ended up passing away. Uh, when we look at the literature, it was kind of scary because uh, other than frontline workers, uh, people in the ER, uh, respiratory therapists, et cetera, when people are seen in clinic, the physicians like ENT and ophthalmology were the ones who were most affected by it. So we were initially all a little scared because we didn't know how exactly to, to handle this. Uh, in the local areas, things were shutting down. Disney, Universal shut down, which is huge. They never shut down for anything, even hurricanes. So mm -hmm. that really showed that there was a level of severity that we were taking it seriously. Uh, and uh, we, would, we tried to see patients as best as we could. You know, we did telemedicine, we tried that telemedicine. It was not very effective, other than the usual problems with telemedicine, people being able to log in uh, and actually get on there and, and talk to the doctor. We have an especially big problem because we can't see the eye very well, although this is pretty good. A lot of times the visual quality on, on video is simply not on par with just a photo, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to an eye. And I can't expect these guys to take, you know, my patients to take quality photos to tell what's going on. Uh, and, you know, of course, we're liable uh, and we want to do the right thing for patients and not, and not make the wrong, uh, the wrong choices for them. Uh, and we, they also can't get visual uh, vitals, such as uh, vision pressures, uh, all those things for my glaucoma patients, it's hard to make any kind of decision making. So what we ended up doing was converting to a mobilized platform where we would have the patients come in in the morning, uh, the technicians were all dressed in gowns and masks and all the PPE and everything and, and eye protection. And they would check a vision with an ear card and put anesthetic drops in and check a pressure with a tone of pen with a disposable cover. So that way there was no risk of any spread. Patients would go home and I would do a telemedicine visit with them in the afternoon at their appointed time. 
Uh, and to be honest with you, I think the patients really liked it. They were seen in a timely manner for once. And <laughs> we actually, um, they were able to do it in the comfort of their own home. And at least I felt a little bit more comfortable with my established patients doing this. For the new patients, I still had to see them in the clinic. Uh, it's the only way to really be able to do right by the patient. And then we started getting a little bit more comfortable with things. Uh, and about two months ago, uh, they finally reopened and we were able to see patients, able to operate. Well, you guys know the Florida kind of released some of their uh, uh, initial inhibitions and it's kind of costing us now a little bit. But uh, most patients were, were fine with coming back. There were a few people who were still pretty scared. Uh, but most people, I, I tend to find it like a bimodal distribution. They, they did want to come back. Uh, and then there were also a lot of new patients who needed to come in. And they've been saying that a lot of patients who had held off, people who needed cataract surgery, for instance, now we're coming in. I definitely seen, have seen an uptick uh, in that. Uh, we also got a chance during this uh, to try to uh, really uh, provide a platform for patients so that they could feel safe. I really wanted them to feel safe. And so my wife and I and my manager, we really try to brainstorm as to what kinds of things we could do to provide that environment for them. Uh, obviously, we we're all going to wear PPE. We made it mandatory and we told our patients, look, you got to wear PPE. And if they did come in without any, we would provide a mask for them. Uh, we had lots of shields like at the front desk, as well as in our, uh, in our rooms uh, protecting us. And uh, when we had them uh, check in the patients, and we tried to do as much as we could uh, via the cloud uh, so that we could minimize time in the office itself. And they were assigned to a specific a chair in the office where that would be cleaned later on, but like I said, we, we could keep track of our patients. We would bring, the technician would bring them into a room, work them up, and then I would see them there. In the past, we had brought, the technicians have their own room. They would bring a patient back to the waiting room for dilation, and we would bring them back into a room for me to see them. And this way, we're able to cut down on the unnecessary transmission of these patients and having to clean the rooms down repeatedly. And to be honest with you, it's something that I'm probably going to carry on even after COVID. Uh, we really did try to take advantage of this opportunity to maybe make things run a little bit more efficiently for the future. Uh, but we wanted patients to know that we were doing these things. So what we did was make a video uh, because video editing was one of the things I actually was working on during the quarantine. So we all had to have some kind of uh, on a hobby. But I figured I might as well put it to good use. We made a movie uh, put on YouTube and also put it on our website, emailed it to our patients, basically like a welcome back uh, video. And I actually did have patients who said, you know, I would not have come. I felt uncomfortable, but the video made me feel more at ease. Great. Phenomenal. That video was great. I don't know how you got Robert Redford to take the role of the ophthalmologist, but I was very impressed <laughs> with it. So as a family physician, um, it, it's tough enough for me to get patients in for their preventive care once a year, or once every two years if their insurance allows. Now it's a pandemic. So how do I get patients in for their routine eye checks? Obviously, you already commented on the safety. What other pointers do you have for getting patients in for their allowable eye exams yearly? In the early goings, the Academy of Ophthalmology discouraged us from doing any kind of routine eye exams, which was reasonable. We were still figuring this thing out and really trying to cut down on the, the spread as much as possible. As things have started to slowly come back uh, to normal, um, we've really tried to, like I said, make it a more hospitable environment. We're not forcing anybody to do anything. Uh, we, I don't do as much telemedicine as I used to because now I am in clinic you know, all the time. I, I find it to be a very safe environment. Uh, we have not had any doctor, number one, we check the for temperatures at the door. Uh, we haven't had anybody have any fevers or anything, uh, nor have we had any spread to or from patients, you know, that we have, uh, you know, documented. I think it is important that we 
do make sure that we follow the normal guidelines that we have always done. Because what I'm fearful of is that patients, especially if they have a vision problem, um, may not get the care that they, that they need. Uh, and then unfortunately, that might result in some permanent problems down the line when we could have intervened earlier, for instance, patients with glaucoma or maybe patients with um, some corneal infections. Not so much cataracts because those are things that while they can cause some vision problems, at least are reparable. And, you know, uh, my background being in pulmonary and critical care, um, I, I do have some experience with uh, ocular comp complications in the ICU. Um, in fact, a number of years ago, a, a very um, uh, motivated young first-year ophthalmology resident, William Ensor, uh, who was training in, uh, in Pennsylvania, probably in his last year of residency now, he um, came to me with this idea about protecting patients on a ventilator on sedation from uh, keratopathy, uh, which is um, uh, for, the, for the listeners and viewers, basically desiccation of the eye from having uh, the eye partially open because of paralytic agents or sedation. And so that is certainly something that we're mindful of. But uh, in talking with Dr. Raja before this interview, he also had asked about um, how prone positioning may be affecting, um, you know, vision and the potential complications there. So I'll mention uh, pr prone positioning just as a summary is, is when you put people on their bellies when they're on the ventilator in the bed uh, so that they can uh, perhaps uh, expand and aerate their lungs a little bit better since most of your lung tissue is actually in the back, uh, not so much in the front and it is very helpful. However, the positioning has to be maintained for quite some period of time. And again, these patients are often on sedatives that they're not able to close and open their eyes and move their positioning. So Dr. Raja, with that in mind, um, you know, what would be a potential complication there of, uh, let's say the intraocular pressures or whatnot from that position change? Sure. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that. I remember my, uh, my wife who was an ophthalmologist in residency, she actually did a project where we had to have, and I was the, the, the one who volunteered, I was dating her at the time, and I would have to go in these various positions and she would check my eye pressure and she was working with the glaucoma attending. So I know this firsthand. And when you lay in a supine position, and that was very awkward by the way, and you check your eye pressure, it is definitely elevated. And that's you, mean, you mean the prone position when you're in the- um, Yes. The prone position, okay. Right, like, yes, when you're in the prone position, like face, face down. Um, and if you sleep like on one side, for instance, if you sleep on your right side, the pressure is elevated on that side. So I sometimes, if I have a patient with a, say, asymmetric glaucoma, which is generally caused by an increased uh, intraocular pressure that's you know, generally more chronic, I ask them sometimes, like, what side do you sleep on? And, you know, sometimes it actually it comes to bear that, oh, yeah, I do sleep on the right side. And, oh, you know, your, your glaucoma is worse on the right side. So we know that over the long haul, that can certainly cause some problems uh, when it's in a more... I don't know, subacute kind of thing where they're, I don't know how long they're necessarily prone for uh, with, regards to, with regards to COVID, uh, but we, you know, we're seeing some reports of some vision loss. Uh, when the Academy of Ophthalmology did come out with their statement uh, saying, hey, watch out, this theoretically could be a problem back in, in April, they didn't have any reports at that time, but certainly I've heard some anecdotal reports now, and they said, you know, hey, down the line, as these people wake up, we may find that they may have some, some issues, some sequela, just like we're finding out with COVID now that, you know, there's all sorts of, it's affecting everywhere. Sure. Um, well, similarly, it might be an issue where the pressure goes up and could be causing like an ischemic event, either in the nerve or in the retina. If you think of blood flow, you know, going from 
like downstream, so to speak, if there's all this pressure there, it may be difficult for blood and therefore oxygen to really flow to the necessary areas and that could be causing some sort of infarction. So words of the wise for my ICU colleagues to be on the lookout for. Thank you. And going along with that, with all the chronic eye conditions that you and I both see in practice, uh, people with obviously glaucoma, cataracts, et cetera, but also patients with uh, central, retina, central retinal vein inclusions who need to come in for their intraocular injections. Are these people showing up? Are they getting behind on injections? Patients with diabetic retinopathy, are they missing their, their procedures? Are you, now that you're catching up in Florida, seeing patients coming in with worse disease or have these patients felt safe coming in all along for their routine chronic care? I find that most of the people who haven't come have been the routine eye exams because they feel fine and don't have any particular eye problems that they feel that they have anyway. Uh, the cataract patients who are having visually significant cataracts are definitely coming in. I, I'm seeing that in a higher uh, amount, uh, as well as people who are either in pain or having some sort of vision affecting problem. Those people are still coming in. They're still very motivated uh, to seek medical treatment. The glaucoma suspects are mostly coming in. There are a few that are requesting some refills on some medication and would like to hold off. And for those folks, we can always do like a telemedicine appointment to just make sure that they're doing okay. But the majority are willing to come in. They understand that they have an eye problem that they take medication for and that they need to be seen and they want to know what their pressures are. So thankfully that hasn't been a big problem as of late. Well, great. I think um, this has been a phenomenal, uh, you know, interview that we've covered a couple of things that I think a lot of people may have had on their minds and then some other areas where people might not have thought of, but certainly uh, do impact the eye. So I uh, really appreciate your contributions. Uh, very much appreciate uh, the, um, the way that you uh, altered your practice and the video you recorded, which I found very helpful also, and hopefully some of our, uh, our viewers and, and listeners will check out. And um, I wish you well. Keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank, Thank you. And that takes us to our third segment for today, questions submitted by our viewers and listeners. And uh, the first one I'm going to tackle, and it really is a question of what hospitals are seeing uh, in terms of the ICU patient breakdown now, COVID versus non-COVID. So um, obviously, uh, it, COVID in the United States has been a regional um, problem. So early on, New York, North Jersey, then Philadelphia, southern parts of New Jersey, Connecticut, they were all affected. Um, now we're seeing it in the southern states. So obviously, this uh, population of, of ICU patients is going to vary. What I can tell you um, from colleagues I, I have in Texas and in Florida, um, the ICUs there are predominantly getting filled up with COVID patients in the COVID hotspots. Um, two things to remember, one, hospitals uh, tend to close down their elective surgeries and other procedures, so you get less patients coming to the ICU that would normally come after procedures or complications thereof. Um, and then two, um, you know, ER volumes drop in those areas uh, significantly, 30 um, some, are, some are at 30, 40 percent of what they normally would be this, you know, for a particular time of year. So 
um, the volume coming into the hospital of non-COVID patients tends to be lower. The sicker patients who have COVID need ICU level care, they're going there. Now, in areas where we've gotten through the COVID um, first wave, it looks different. So uh, in, in the regions where you know, I'm familiar directly and I practice, um, Pennsylvania, Delaware, we have um, a smattering of COVID patients that have still kept on coming to the ICU, um, but they are now, thankfully, the minority of patients coming in. And then we have our regular uh, host of folks with uh, post-surgical uh, infections, complications, heart problems, um, uh, the general things we would normally see with you know, organ dysfunction in an ICU that is non-COVID related. Uh, they're in the ICU and the ICU is, is quite busy. Um, from that perspective. So I think that's kind of a breakdown of what uh, other areas may have seen or be seeing, um, but realize that, again, the critical thing here is um, we only have so many ICU beds and the equipment in, and the people who run the equipment um, are finite. And so that is one of the major reasons why, uh, you know, just saying, well, let everybody get sick, come to the hospital, they'll get better. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, it's, it's not hard to overwhelm the systems when you're talking about thousands of patients um, who may uh, need care in a short period of time. Um, so please uh, keep that in mind as, as this is uh, rolling around in discussions. Yeah, it's promising to hear how we flatten the curve so early here and our learnings were very low at this point. Now we're seeing the unflattening of the curve in other regions. So we wish everybody well in the, in the surging hotspots right now. And that segues into the next question where, you know, someone asked, you know, how are we managing the psychological impacts of COVID? Uh, job loss, absence of sports, et cetera. And, and the impacts are, are, are vast and numerous and touch on every part of most people's lives. Um, it's, it's been complicated as, as a primary care doctor, I'm seeing it every day in the office and we saw a good deal of this when we're actually physically closed and just pivoting to telemedicine visits only. A lot of the visits we're dealing with mental health. So as a primary care physician, I deal with mental health all the time. It's a major issue for us even before the pandemic and now with the pandemic hitting us, it's obviously a much more acute issue and it really touches on almost every office visit. Now that I'm back in the office, I spend half the time talking about the pandemic and we're not talking about their acute medical issues or chronic medical issues, but more how they're handling it, how they're getting to the supermarket, who's helping them or family nearby, uh, questions they have. And that's a big part of what we can provide as a primary care doctor. However, the system is rather broken from a mental health standpoint and that access is still very poor. Early on in the pandemic, it was sort of easy to get in touch with a therapist or a counselor because it was all telemedicine and you know the wait times were a lot less and patients had better access. Now we're getting back to where it's becoming way more complex and patients are leaning more on their primary care physicians, which we're happy to do, but we definitely need help uh, when needed. Uh, the use of benzodiazepines has climbed quite a bit. These are medications like Xanax, Ativan, and Clonopin, which should be used really in short supply with small amounts. Uh, there's definitely a tolerance and addiction potential with these medications, but people are really suffering mental anguish and we're probably, myself included, uh, thinking about these a little bit more and having to spend time explaining the dangers of these medications and giving out a small supply, but those numbers have skyrocketed. Uh, our goal is to find non-medicinal ways to help people, and that includes things like meditation, exercise, getting a little sunlight each day, 20 minutes to pump up your vitamin D levels, socializing with friends and loved ones using technology. We have so many awesome platforms now to socialize. It's almost tougher to be a hermit than it is to socialize these days. Uh, going forward, the pandemic is here for a while. 
and the repercussions are going to be here for a while. And we're going to talk about this more with the special guest on our next show. But really, the insurance companies have to take this very seriously and expand access to their insureds, expand access to the primary care doctors, know where to send them, and get patients needed therapy and psychiatric care when needed. Yeah, great, um, great question. And, and I certainly see the other end of that on the sleep medicine side with uh, anxiety leading to, in, leading to insomnia, uh, which actually feeds into a vicious cycle of depression and more anxiety and loss of focus. And so uh, I think everything that uh, Dr. Cohen just mentioned is, is super important and avail yourself of the technology available to, to help manage these things. Um, another question was um, at a local uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey eatery uh, pizza place. Um, there was in the news this week about uh, three uh, employees getting tested positive for COVID and then shutting down to do some uh, deep cleaning and um, trying to uh, reopen in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, I uh, actually enjoy Ocean City, New Jersey. I was there a few weeks ago. Uh, certainly enjoy the pizza on the boardwalk and certainly understand, you know, people asking, hey, should I be worried? Uh, I go to the boardwalk to get pizza. You know, what what should I do? Well, I think, you know, um, having been there myself, you know, you do have to wear masks when you go up to the counter. The counters do have the glass separators, um, things that, um, you know, we talked about weeks ago that were going to be there for the prep. They put in place. But, you know, it's a twofold thing. So number one, if you're feeling sick, you don't come to work. So uh, I think the issue here was two of the, two of the um, uh, workers may have been asymptomatic and one was symptomatic. So uh, that, you know, that may have been, and I don't know what the symptom was, but necessarily, you know, if you're not feeling well, uh, this is not a time to tough it out and just go into work, especially when you're front facing with uh, customers and food. So if you're working in those environments, that's one thing to think of. On the, on the other end of it, um, it's, you know, that when they're there and they're serving the food and they're doing the things they're doing, they're wearing masks, they're wearing gloves, um, they're doing all the things they need to do as well. What I'm more concerned about are the people, the general public, walking the boardwalk maskless, right? So people sometimes will just put their mask on as they walk up to the counter area. That's not necessarily the greatest of ideas. I know it's no fun to walk on a boardwalk in summer with, you know, a cloth or a surgical mask on, but these aren't normal times. Um, however, there's more of a risk of that than there is from you getting it from your pizza. Uh, so I, I think, you know, being mindful of what's going on there. Um, what I opted to do was spend less time on the boardwalk and simply do more takeout. Um, and I still got my pizza. I sat on my own porch with it, with my own beer. Uh, and I didn't have to wear a mask. So I was sitting on my own porch and I wasn't around anybody. So I was enjoying it. Um, so that's just something to think about. Uh, these places do need your patronage. So, um, you know, if they're open and, and they're meeting uh, the requirements to be open, uh, you know, I would say take advantage of what they have to offer and support them. Uh, but just be mindful if you're going out there you know, how you should, uh, you know, uh, be my, uh, be, be uh, aware of, of your own surroundings and uh, your own uh, personal protective equipment. Yeah, very strong points. It's delicious pizza, but it's also good on your balcony or porch as well, mm -hmm. better than on a crowded boardwalk. So, you know, that, that, that leads to our, our final question this week. And it was actually a question that uh, came up with a, with a patient phone call uh, over the week about testing. 
So we've heard every permutation of testing and exposure and what do I do and where do I go? And I was with this person and my best friend's neighbor's boyfriend who saw Ferris Bueller pass out at 31 Flavors last night has COVID. What do I do with that information? The, the complexity is really not just determining who needs testing, not just determining where to send them, but then we have to figure out when do we get the results and how do we process the results? This situation uh, was a... Uh, kid in his late uh, late teens, was with a family on a family camping trip last week where there was no social distancing, kisses, hugging, sharing of tents, who today, Saturday, I'm losing track of time, uh, has symptoms, uh, loss of taste, cough, etc. He's fine. He, he feels fine. However, he needs to be tested because of his proximity to all these people last weekend and to effectively contact trace and go back and warn these people that they might have an exposure. However, it's a Saturday. The county is not open to be tested. Certain pharmacies in this part of the world, you know, CVS in Pennsylvania will do self, either self-testing, but the lag time on results can be upwards of 10 days. And by that time, the patient will have cleared the infection and contact tracing is no longer doable at that point. So we don't really have an effective system for testing symptomatic or asymptomatic. A lot of our testing is being reserved for hospitals, people in emergency rooms, people getting elective surgeries. There are some people who are trying to travel right now to other countries or, or states that require testing before you can go there, and they can't get testing. The NBA, they can get tests. The NFL, they get tests. You and I, maybe not so much. So it all gets back to the point of please treat everybody as if they have this disease. I know it sounds ludicrous, but if you socially distance and wear a mask when you're with others, stay outdoors as much as possible, wash your hands and don't touch your face, you're going to do okay. That way you don't have to look back and say, oops, I can't smell today. And I was with 300 people last weekend. That shouldn't be the case. Not only would you alarm those 300 people when you call them to tell them, do you have symptoms? You can't get a test result for 10 more days. So simple rules. If you had exposure to somebody, you need to quarantine for 14 days, not isolate, just quarantine. If you are sick, if you are proven to have COVID-19, you have to isolate. That's different than quarantine for 10 days. And you need to be 24 hours, that just recently changed from 72 hours, 24 hours without symptoms, without using over-the-counter medications to get back to the real world. So please take this very seriously. We're seeing what's happening in many states in the Southwest and the South. People are not taking this seriously. And then you have to worry about not only you getting sick, but those around you getting sick and then having to look back and making those very awkward phone calls. Hey, I've got COVID and I hugged you last week. With that being said, thank you for all your questions. We're going to continue to have special guests each week for episode 10. We plan to have a licensed social worker and therapist, Edie Weinstein, joining us to discuss the, more of the psychosocial aspect that I touched on of COVID-19 and her patients in her community. And we are also preparing a back-to-school summit, is what we're calling it, uh, for August, hoping to get different minds, teachers, uh, different age groups on to discuss what might be happening end of August and September. In the meantime, please continue to send questions to Between Two Docs, T-W-O-Docs, D-O-C-S at gmail.com. We do read every question and do hope to get to all of your questions at some point during our docudrama. And we hope to introduce a new episode episode every, every week or so as we go through the summer. So stay kind, socially distance, wash your hands, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time. Be well.